The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Did you know that relaxation is all in your mind? That's right. By applying various techniques of mindfulness, you can practice relaxation anywhere and anytime, whether it's at home, work, or at play. Welcome to Come Back to Your Senses Radio with host Leah Brenda Smith. Our program is all about recovering your common sense. Now, here's health and wellness specialist Leah Brenda Smith. Hello, I am your host, Leah Brenda Smith, and welcome to Come Back to Your Senses Radio on Voice America Variety and simultaneously broadcasted on Project Freedom Radio Network. So thanks for tuning in today. If you're looking for me on the net, you can find me at LeahBrendaSmith.com or on Facebook at LeahBrendaSmith or come back to your senses radio page. Today's show is about creativity. And I'm going to just start off with a little quote here that uh, appeared in the book Jonathan Livingston Seagull by Richard Bach. And it says, don't believe what your eyes are telling you. All they show is limitation. Look with your understanding. Find out what you already know and you'll see the way to fly. Jonathan Livingston Seagull, the wise seagull flying through the sky, letting go. And then just by way of definition, you know, some would suggest that creative thinking is generally considered to be involved with the creation or generation of ideas, of processes, experiences, or objects. And then critical thinking is concerned with the evaluation of those things. So creativity or creativeness is more of a mental process, some would suggest, involving the generation of new ideas or concepts or new associations between existing ideas or concepts. Creativity is also an attitude, the ability to accept change and to accept newness and to make room for newness and a willingness to play with ideas and possibilities, a kind of flexibility of outlook and the habit of enjoying the good while looking for ways to improve it. You know, in actuality, we're all creative every day because we are constantly changing the ideas which we hold about the world and about our place in the world. So creativity doesn't have to be about developing something new in the world. It's more to do with developing something new in ourselves. I've been blessed with a propensity and I guess an ease with the creative process. 
I've practiced the art of allowing creativity, inspiration, and intuition to flow through me in a really in a relaxed, nonchalant way that has become as natural as breathing. And early in my life, I recognized that creativity is an ever-present, all-pervasive, abundant energy. It's available all of the time to everyone. Creativity knows no boundaries or borders. And we need only open ourselves to the flow of creativity through us to experience its bounty and its blessings. Now, as a young child, I recognized an incredible outlet for my creativity through singing. And although I was a shy youngster, I was shy as a youngster, but in public school, I would sing in the schoolyard with one of my one of my school friends. We sang every day during recess and during lunch. And then when I was at home, I would escape to the basement and incessantly play my mother's records until I memorized all of the lyrics to the fabulous tones and the emotions that were coming from the singers that I was trying to emulate. But at a very basic, intrinsic level, all of our cells are abundant with creative energy. And through singing, I could feel my cells being charged with freedom and delight. Now, that's the very base and essence of who we are as humanity. Everything around us and within us has been developed by an intrinsic creative force. And the key that I found is allowing yourself to be open to this flow. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on which way you look at it, there's no one right way or method to allowing your creative essence to express itself through you. Sure, there are books and guides and mentors and classes and courses that you can take on developing and exploring your creativity, which can be extremely helpful. Yet let's bear in mind that all of the courses and books and guidelines were developed and created by someone that relaxed and opened to their creativity. And you may need to develop your own way to tap into this inexhaustible resource that's always available to you. Other people's methods may work for you and other people's methods may not. You know, in high school, it occurred to me that all of the information that is written in all of the books has come from people's experiences of life. So instinctively, it felt important for me to recognize that anything, that everything that I experienced in my life was as valid as anything that I would ever read in a book. In fact, my own experiences and perceptions could guide me to what it was that I needed. And in turn, sometimes what I needed was to be drawn to a particular book or mentor or class for guidance. Now, from my early years in metaphysics and meditation, I was able to tap into a universal pool of wisdom, which is indeed overflowing, 
with creativity. You know, like the land of milk and honey on the shore where Michael rowed his boat. And as a young adult, I felt prompted to recognize that my life path included finding as many ways to express creativity as possible. I began to appreciate that creativity is its own energy. That creativity in and of itself is an energy, it's not an endeavor. And that creativity as an energy creates through you. Creativity can be like thinking outside of the box, being willing to reach beyond that which is known and that which is already established. I learned that creativity can be applied to any and all endeavors, not just the endeavors that are normally thought of as creative acts, like through the creative arts and innovations in science and medicine and technology. You know, when we're children, we don't think of creativity the way that adults do. Yet children are often, they're often caught in the act of being extraordinarily creative, imaginative, inventive, and innovative, right in the middle of their everyday, ordinary life experiences. Just overflowing, children are a font of creativity. Ah, yes, speaking of children, this is a huge area of creative possibilities. Now, I've always loved spending time with children for the opportunity to enjoy and be refreshed by their creativity and also to bring creativity to our exchange. Yesterday, while I was going for a walk in the neighborhood, I came across a mother and her young preschool-aged daughter. The young girl was holding on to a low-lying branch from a tree that edged the sidewalk. She was saying to her mother something like, Take this off the tree. I want to bring it home. (laughs) I was so delighted to walk by and see her there, you know, holding on to the tree. So I just smiled and I, I put my arms out as if I was mimicking the arms of the tree. And I said to her, oh, no, something like, oh, no, that arm is attached to the tree trunk, just like your arms are attached to your trunk. Now she let go of the tree, and the two of us did a little dance with our arms out like the tree branches for a few moments. Just pure creativity in the moment, and such a playful moment, dancing like trees. It was so precious, creativity showing up there in the moment out of just being present and just being aware and being awake. You know, this is just one example of countless experiences of creativity and playfulness that I've had throughout my life with children. Usually as adults, we use creativity or bribing. Some of us use bribing or sometimes we use bribing to get kids to do something that we want them to do. You know, like the airplane ride that the food takes on the spoon before your mother fed you. Or the way that you put your head down on the pillow to indicate that you want your child to go to sleep. 
creativity in parenting works really well. But let's remember to up the ante on creativity just for the pure joy and pleasure for both you and your children, and not just resort to it in terms of a functional way to get things done, which we sometimes do. You know, growing up in a large family, there was always a mountain of laundry and a pile of dishes and lots of things to make orderly. And for me, these chores were all the more pleasant when I approached them with creativity. Sometimes it was as simple as, you know, the tune whistle while you work. Or that great feeling of accomplishment when the towels were all folded in an impeccable stack. I love that. Just seeing them all, it's like they're smiling back at me. And then a tip, a great tip for those that get bored easily with menial tasks when there's a lot of work to do. What I would do is I would switch from task to task. So I do a little bit in this room and then a little bit in that room and so on. And then these little ways of bringing creativity into the chores made a huge difference to my ability to bring myself to the moment, which always increases one's enjoyment no matter what the activity. So rather than going on automatic pilot and spacing out while I was doing the chores, I was really on purpose bringing myself exactly to the chores, exactly to the experience of it, and finding through creativity ways to enjoy the activity. Now, as a songwriter, I am rhythmic and melodic and lyrical. And often when I have been in in the flow of writing a song, it actually feels more like being the scribe of a song, sort of receiving. Most of the songs I've authored, I actually... I felt more like I received them. Sometimes it would happen, you know, just after I'd gone to bed. I'd be laying there and I could hear a song in my mind. So I would get up and find the melody on the piano and write the lyrics down and then come back to the song and develop it and finish it another time. Now, although I'm not a technically proficient musician, I do play the piano and hand drums the clarinet, the fife, and the guitar I dabble with. And at a young age, I learned that the love of song and openness to creativity can lend itself to a lifetime full of exceptional experiences, creating a joyful sound in the world through music and song. One doesn't have to be proficient or be a professional in any of the creative arts to glean enjoyment and have pleasurable experiences and engage in the creative process through these activities. Now, as a writer, I've mostly developed in the area of nonfiction. Although many years ago, I did dabble a bit in writing fiction for children and young adults. And as a poet, I tend to write limericks. So I started off that way, doing rhyming poetry and then later went into open prose and stream of consciousness. As a painter, I am contemporary and abstract. The pieces I paint are about color and movement, 
with lots of experimentation in the moment. You know, trying new approaches to applying the paint and moving the paint around on the canvas. For me, painting has never been about the finished product. It's more about the act of creating. But let's leave that exploration for another day. At a staff appreciation party for my 10 years of service, my executive director described me as having a healthy irreverence for established ways. A healthy irreverence for established ways, thinking outside the box, definitely thinking outside the box and drawing in that creative energy. He witnessed my creativity and innovation in action in the things that I produce, certainly, and the ways that I was able to create rapport with the people we served, and in my ability to inspire others to excel and to draw on their own creativity. And I might add, he also experienced my creative frustration when the developmental stages of projects were complete and there was no new projects on the horizon. I'm certainly much more of a developmental creative get things going than really the maintenance of projects. Yet for other people, the maintenance of projects is a perfect expression for their creativity. But for me, creativity has been something to make friends with. It's been a long-term relationship that requires care and attention in order to thrive, to keep it fresh and alive and continue to develop. Now, there are times when I feel plateaus in every aspect or area of life such as physical health, family, career, even in music and writing and art and spiritual development and in relationships. And as I've matured, I've come to recognize that this is actually a natural progression of the life cycle, that creativity is like most things in life. It returns in cycles and is ever-changing, just like the tides and the moon and the ebbs in the flow of our physical energy, our emotions, our mental acuity, and our self-expression. So it's an ongoing maturing relationship that's ever-growing and changing. And our capacity for creativity grows and changes and shifts as we mature and as we relax and open to it. Here's a little quote from Abraham Maslow. He says, a musician must make music. An artist must paint. A poet must write. If he or she is ultimately to be at peace with himself or herself. What one can be, one must be. And that's from Maslow. And Abraham Maslow was a humanistic psychologist. He believed, he believed that in every person, there's a strong desire to realize their full potential. And he believed that creativity was an aspect of personality. He was different from some of the other psychologists because he studied healthy individuals rather than like Freud, who studied serious psychological issues. 
So Maslow went on to clarify that he saw creativity as a special perceptiveness, a kind of perceptiveness that people had. He said that creative people could see that which was fresh and concrete and raw. They could see the abstract and the generic. And there were other qualities he described as characters of creative people like independence and self-confidence, a sense of humor and playfulness and the openness to experience. And he also saw that creative people have a preference for complexity and an acceptance of disorder, a tolerance for ambiguity. Now, Maslow, he didn't link creativity with psychological problems. You know, some people believe that creative people have to be suffering from depression or addiction or oppression or abuse in order to be creative. And this has certainly been true of some of the famous artists and writers throughout history. Yet it's not necessarily a recipe for creativity. And Debbie Ellison, um, she suggests that highly creative people are constantly engaged in growth and development. They're always striving to be the best that they can be and discover their specific unique talents. And Maslow, he coined the term self-actualization in 1960, in the 1960s. And this for him was to represent the ultimate motivator of people the need or the desire to be all that they could be, to be what they were meant to be. Now, we have to give ourselves permission to be creative. We have to choose creativity. We have to choose, are we going to expand or contract? Are we going to allow our passion to be free-flowing, or are we going to keep it contained? Are we going to allow self-expression, or are we going to hold ourselves back? Because creative energy is just always flowing. So you're either in the flow with creativity or you're stuck or stopped or in the ebb with it. And by choosing to express our creative energy in positive, life-affirming ways, we can live a life filled with joy and filled with delight and passion. And Maslow studied people who were highly creative and he called them self-actualizing. He found that many of these people were not particularly productive or talented per se. But in their everyday, in their daily lives, they were original, they were ingenious, and they were inventive. And he coined the term self-actualizing creativeness, saying that creativity can be manifest in anything we do, even in our most ordinary mundane activities. He said that, Creative people were more spontaneous and expressive and natural and less controlled and inhibited than the average person, less blocked and less self-critical, and better able to express their ideas and their impulses. He also suggested that creative people have a keen sense of reality. They can see problems in terms of challenges and situations that required solutions rather than personal complaints or excuses. 
that they had a need for privacy and that they drew comfort in being alone. And there was a greater reliance on their own experience and judgment, their independence. Again, the ability to think outside the box, to think without relying on the culture or the environment to form their opinions and their views. The nonconformity, not success susceptible to social pressures. He also found them to be compassionate and humane able to accept others without trying to change them. And they tended to enjoy having a few intimate friends rather than many surface relationships. They were good at mm, directing humor at themselves or at the human condition rather than humor that is at the expense of others. They were spontaneous and natural, true to themselves, rather than how other people want them to be. And they're excited and interested in everything, even ordinary things. Creative, inventive, and original. And they were always seeking peak experiences that would leave a lasting impression on them. You know, in Maslow himself, he had some experiences with some of the people that he worked with in the late 50s and early 60s. And he shared some of the things that he had learned from them. And he said that one woman who was uneducated and poor, she was a, a full-time housewife and mother. And she did none of the conventional creative things, yet she was a marvelous cook, mother and wife and perfect hostess. Her meals were banquets. Her taste in linens and silver and glass and crockery and furniture were impeccable. So in all these things, she was original, novel, ingenious, unexpected, and inventive. I just had to call her creative. I learned from her and others like her to think that a first-rate soup is better than a second-rate painting, and that generally cooking or parenting or making a home could be creative. Well, poetry need not be. It could be uncreative. He said that another one of his subjects devoted himself to what be, can be best called as social service in the broadest sense, bandaging up wounds, helping the downtrodden, not only in a personal way, but in an organizational way as well. And one of her creations is an organization which helps many more people than she could help individually. And then he says, from a young athlete, I learned that a perfect tackle could be as aesthetic a product as a sonnet and could be approached in the same creative spirit. In other words, I learned to apply the word creative and also the words aesthetic, not only to products, but also to people in a categorical way and to activities and processes and attitudes. And furthermore, I'd come to apply the word creative to many products other than the standard and conventionally accepted poems and theories, novels, experiments, or paintings 
to which I had hitherto restricted the word. And another observation was that creativeness was in many respects like the creativeness of all happy and secure children. It was spontaneous, effortless, innocent, easy, a kind of freedom from stereotypes and cliches. Now, almost any child can perceive more freely without a prior expectation about what ought to be there or what has always been there. And almost any child can compose a song or a poem or a dance or a painting or a play or a game on the spur of the moment without planning or previous intent. So Maslow goes on to say that what I am saying in effect is that the creativity of my subjects seems to be related to their greater wholeness and integration which is what self-acceptance applies. The civil war within the average person, the forces of inner depths, and the force of their defensiveness and control seems to have resolved in my subjects that are less split. And as a consequence, more of themselves is available for use, for enjoyment, and for creative purposes. They waste less of their time and energy protecting themselves against themselves. I love that. Maslow in his self-actualization phase, may we all live there forever, be self-actualized beings. Now, creativity is the art of creation. And creativeness is the quality of the person that is creative. And in a business context, today's managers and leaders think of creativity rather than creativeness. The corporate culture has trained us to immediately think of results rather than seeking to be the kind of people who achieve them. Mm, which might be a little bit like putting the cart before the horse. You know, we, very often we look for something which can be measured and therefore controlled. We use the word creativity with the underlying intent that it can be measurable quality, whereas creativeness is not. Creativeness is a quality of the person. Creativeness is something entirely natural, you know, like the budding of a plant from a seed. And because it's natural, it can't really be forced to produce, commanded or demanded. There aren't really any recipes for creativeness. It happens in one's presence, just at the spur of the moment. And even those of us that are not in particularly creative fields, you know, must come up with new ideas and insights in order to move ahead. You know, how can we shake up our thinking patterns? Creativity has been pegged to conducive environments, perfect collaborators, personality traits, serendipity, and even spiritual muses. While research psychologists are interested in increasing innovative thinking, clinical psychologists sometimes encourage patients to use artistic expression as a way to confront difficult feelings. 
Honey, I'll share some things with you about creativity in children. Let's start with a quote by Chuck Jones. He says that you have to have a coyote inside of you and you have to get it out. And Chuck Jones is the animator, the fellow that created Wiley the Coyote. But creativity really takes root in childhood. For the child, life is a creative adventure. The most basic explorations of children's world are creative exercises in problem solving. You know, they begin a lifelong process of inventing themselves. And in this sense, every child reinvents language, walking, love, how to eat, how to do everything. And the kernel of creativity, Teresa Annabile, a psychologist, says that the kernel of creativity is there in the infant, the desire and the drive to explore, to find out about things, to try things out, to experiment with different ways of handling things and looking at things. And as they grow older, children begin to create entire universes of reality in their play. Our experience of creativity in childhood really shapes much of what we do in adulthood, from work to family life. But if creativity is a child's natural state, then what happens on the way to adulthood? The psychological pressures that inhibit a child's creativity occur early in life. Now, parents can encourage or suppress the creativity of their children in the home environment and by what they demand of schools. Most children in preschool, kindergarten, even in the first grade, love being in school. They're excited about exploring and learning. But by the time they're in the third or fourth grade, many don't like school, let alone have any sense of pleasure in their own creativity. But Annabelle's research has identified the main creativity killers. And the first she says is surveillance, you know, hovering over kids, making them feel that they're constantly being watched while they're working. The second is evaluation, making kids worry about how others judge what they are doing. Kids should be concerned primarily with how satisfied they are and not how satisfied others are with their accomplishments. Next, she says competition. Putting kids in a win-lose situation where only one person can come out on top. Child should be allowed to progress at his or her own rate. And then over-control. Telling kids exactly how to do things. You know, this leaves children feeling that any exploration is a waste of time. And then pressure. Establishing grand expectations for a child's performance, like training regimes that can easily backfire and end up instilling an aversion for the subject being taught. But one of the greatest creativity killers is more subtle and so deeply rooted in our culture that's hardly noticed 
and it has to do with time. Children, more naturally than adults, enter that ultimate state of creativity called flow. And in the flow, time does not matter. There's only the timeless moment at hand. It's a state that's more comfortable for children than adults, who are more conscious of the passing of time. And one ingredient of creativity is open-ended time, says Anne Levon, a director of Capital Children's Museum in Washington, D.C. She says children have the capacity to get lost in whatever they're doing in a way that's much harder for an adult. They need the opportunity to follow their natural inclinations and their own particular talents, to go wherever, wherever their own feelings lead them. Unfortunately, children are interrupted and they're torn out of their deep concentration. The desire to work through something is frustrated. We live in a such a hurried way. So again and again, children are stopped in the middle of the things that they love to do. They're scheduled. That more than anything else will stifle their creativity. And creativity flourishes when things are done for enjoyment. When children learn a creative form, preserving the joy matters as much, if not more, than getting it right. What matters is the pleasure not the perfection. And a stimulating physical environment is part of the equation. And so are specific attitudes that also foster the creative spirit in the young. In creative families, there's a different feeling in the air. There's more breathing space. The parents of creative children give them what may seem to be a surprising amount of freedom. And that's not an easy lesson for many parents. The main thing that Annabelle says she's learned from her daughter Kristen is to not over-control and how important it is as a parent to give her freedom and space. So when she was really little, she'd see her playing with a new toy or a game and she'd be trying to put something together or do something in the way that Annabelle knew was wrong, that it wasn't the way the game was supposed to be put together. So she would rush in and she'd say, no, no, honey, let me show you how to do it. And as soon as she did that, obviously her child would lose interest. That reminds me of an experience I had in working with um, uh, young children with developmental disabilities when I was myself uh, in my early 20s. And we were out in the yard one day uh, playing, um, oh, right, we were playing hopscotch. And, of course, uh, the uh, young gals in the schoolyard were playing hopscotch, but they weren't doing it the way that I was certainly taught and knew the game hopscotch to be. And initially I was um, trying to teach them the way that I had learned hopscotch. And after a little bit, it just occurred to me that it didn't really matter. They were playing hopscotch, and there was nothing wrong with the way that they were playing it. So it was a really good lesson to learn at a in my um, early 20s about just letting it be, letting the creativity flow, and not needing to instill some idea of how it should be. 
So Annabelle says that she realized that she was discovering new ways of playing with games and toys and that maybe these weren't the way that they were intended to be played with, but she was being creative. You know, and when parents are supportive of their children's creativity, they'll discover what most psychologists are now confirming, that most children have a natural talent for a particular activity. And by letting a child explore a range of activities, budding talents are more likely to emerge. The essentials, really, of children's creativity, especially the importance of finding what they're excited about, and letting them master the skills necessary to realize that intelligence, and also collaborating with others. But these are really prerequisites for creativity in adult life. And perhaps nowhere is this more critical than in the work that we do. And Teresa um, Annabelle, she also heads uh, the Entrepreneurial Management Unit at Harvard Business School, and she's devoted her research program to the study of creativity. We heard some of her findings in terms of children and creativity, and she also has done research based on the myths of creativity in terms of the workplace in, in a business context. And the first myth, she says, is that there's a myth that creativity comes from creative types. And almost all of the research in the field shows that anyone with normal intelligence is capable of doing some degree of creative work. Creativity depends on a number of things, experience, including knowledge and technical skills, talent, and an ability to think in new ways, and then the capacity to push through uncreative dry spells and intrinsic motivation. So people who are turned on by their work often creatively, they work creatively if they're turned on by what they're doing. And then the second myth, she says, in the business context around creativity is that money is a creativity motivator. And the research that's been done on creativity suggests that money isn't everything. And when asked, when people were asked to what extent were they motivated by rewards in their day, quite often people said that the question is irrelevant, that they don't think about pay on a day-to-day -day basis, and that people who spend a lot of time wondering about their bonuses generally do very little creative thinking. And then another myth about creativity is that time pressure fuels creativity. Now, people often think that they're most creative when they're working under severe deadline pressure, but the studies show the opposite. Time pressures stifle creativity because people can't deeply engage with the problem. Creativity requires a, an incubation period. People need time to soak in a problem and let the ideas bubble up. Another myth is that fear forces breakthroughs. There is a widespread notion that fear and sadness somehow spur creativity. And there's even some psychological literature suggesting that the incidence of depression is higher in creative writers and artists. The depressed geniuses who are incredibly original in their thinking. But the research didn't support the myth. 
when people are excited about their work, there's a better chance that they'll make a cognitive association that incubates overnight and show up. And then it shows up as a creative idea the next day. So one one's one day's happiness can often predict the next day's creativity. And another myth is that competition beats collaboration. This is a widespread belief, particularly in the finance and high-tech industries, that eternal, internal competition fosters innovation. But the surveys show that creativity takes a hit when people in a work group compete instead of collaborate. The most creative teams are those that have the confidence to share and debate ideas. But when people compete for recognition, they stop sharing information, and that's destructive because nobody in an organization has all of the information required to put all of the pieces of the puzzle together. And then the sixth myth is a streamlined organization is a creative organization. But creativity suffers greatly during a downsizing. Communication and collaboration decline significantly. And so too does people's sense of freedom and autonomy. So when people are doing work that they love and they're allowed to deeply engage in, and when the work itself is valued and recognized, then creativity will flourish, even in tough times. So there's those six myths of creativity in a business context. Creativity comes from creative types. Money is a creative motivator. Time pressure fuels creativity. Fear forces breakthroughs. Competition beats collaboration. And a streamlined organization is a creative organization. You know, so often we go through our days on automatic pilot and lacking that sort of in the moment or that Zen inner awareness. But to a certain degree, we like people and situations to be predictable. We enjoy the habitual and we tend to avoid surprises. But there can be a downside to routine when you're speaking about creativity. We can easily become fixed in our ways of seeing, our expectations of how things are supposed to be, replaces our capacity to perceive. And this can range from not seeing the new color of the wall or that your partner got a new haircut. And here are some ideas on refocusing your perception and deepening your creative capacity. Each day, do one thing different from your normal routine. You might go to bed at a new time or take a new route to work or school or eat something that you'd never dream of eating. If you're feeling more adventurous, you could strike up a conversation with a particularly difficult person. The more pesky the person and entrenched the routine, the more likely you're able to shake up your habitual ways of seeing things. So the key is not really to think about how to change things or to ask, well, what's the best thing to change them? but rather to change things for no other reason than just for the sake of it. What we see every day becomes ordinary to us. 
people, sights, sounds, and smells seem to disappear from our awareness. They lose their distinctiveness. You know, one way of dealing with this is to invent new patterns, a fresh way of seeing the commonplace. It can begin with something as basic as water. So the idea is to notice the number of times a day you can, the number of times in a day that you come in contact with it and the different ways that it shows up in your life. It could be a hot shower. It could be little beads of mist on the leaves outside your window. Or it could be ice cubes clinking in your glass. You know, doing this kind of a technique of noticing something like water like that, this technique of taking things out of their ordinary context and creating new pattern for them is a way of making the familiar strange and opening to fresh and creative approaches. Now, brain specialists tell us that brainwave patterns of the pre-adolescent child in the waking state is rich with theta waves. In another show, we did the alpha, the beta alpha, delta theta waves. And these waves are much rarer in adults, the theta waves, that deep state. And they occur most frequently during the hypnagogic state. You know, that kind of twilight, the zone really bordering on sleep when dreams and reality really mixes together. So a child's waking consciousness is comparable to a state of mind that adults know mainly during the dreamlike moments as they're falling asleep. And this may account for one of the reasons why a child's reality naturally embraces zany and bizarre things and silly things. A child's waking awareness is more open to fresh perceptions and wild ideas, so that may even account for some things that terrify them because their minds are open to all kinds of ideas. Then with puberty, the child's brain changes and starts to resemble more, more like the adult brain. And the theta brain waves and the wildly creative flare of the child begin to fade. But some people, they continue to tap the richness of the theta states later in life. Thomas Edison put the hypnagogic state to work when he was an adult. He had an unusual technique for doing this. He would doze off in a chair with his arms and hands draped over the armrest. Each hand he held a ball bearing, and below the hand on the floor were two pie plates. So when he drifted into the state between waking and sleeping, obviously his hands would naturally relax and the ball bearings would drop onto the plate. And then the noise would awaken him. And then Edison would immediately make notes on any ideas that had come to him. Hmm. And here, as we wrap up the show for today, let's talk about letting go. And when people reflect on those times when they have been most fully creative and expressive, they often describe it as a letting go experience. It is at that point that creativity occurs in that letting go time. So it may be in doing this, when people are doing really vigorous exercises, or it could be when they're concentrating on something that's really simple, or they're doing a repetitive task. Or it could be just when you're falling off to sleep, you know, in dreams. Or maybe just when you're waking up, 
Many people find that they routinely get a useful insight in the shower or while meditating or stretching, playing an instrument, dancing. These are other ways that people have of surrendering to their own creativity. You know, some people find that when they're out in nature, going out for a walk or sitting by the fire or by the ocean or watching the waves or hearing the sound of the waves. So here I'm going to outline a couple of approaches that may be able to help you move from a place of not feeling a flow of creativity to letting go. So the first one is to let go physically. And the suggestion is to sit in a chair with your hands resting comfortably on your legs and then tense your legs and keep your legs tensed while you successfully, successively tense your pelvis and tense your rib cage, then your shoulders and your neck and your jaw. And then hold all of that, hold all of that tension in your body for a moment. Just hold it for a moment. And then relax. You have just let go. And so just notice how that feels for you. And then that's a little exercise you can try. You can practice that with yourself for letting go physically. And it will certainly induce a state of relaxation. And then here's just a little exercise for letting go mentally. Imagine that something that you mentally carry around with you, it could be a strong emotion, could be a belief, it could be a thought that blocks your way, that it's actually represented by something you are wearing. So whatever that heavy belief is, it could be represented by something you're wearing, like a shoe or a watch or a ring or a necktie. And imagine that this mental block is contained entirely within that article, within the watch or the shoe or the ring or the necktie. And the thought and the article have now fused into one. And now take it off. Take off that shoe or watch or ring or the necktie. And then observe what you are experiencing as you let go of the mental obstacle. There are just two suggestions there for little exercises that you can try. So creativity. Remember, it's an energy that's available all the time in every moment. And it's just a question of you relaxing and opening, letting go, and allowing yourself to really drink up that. It's not really about being an artist or being a painter or a dancer or a singer, although it may be about that for you. I really encourage you to allow yourself to really explore further with your own experiences of how you can welcome and incorporate creativity more into your day-to-day life, into all the things that you're doing, not just those times that you may set aside or just those activities that you may classify as being 
activities of creativity. The act of creativity. I really appreciate you tuning in today. I am your ever grateful host, Leah Brenda Smith, and I thank you for listening to Come Back to Your Senses Radio. And until next week, let's all relax and enjoy life. We hope you've enjoyed our program today and perhaps have found some new techniques that you can apply to your daily life. Thank you for tuning in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio. Please join Leah Brenda Smith again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you next week.